0: Every conversion that someone's actually executed, I think there is a conversion that 10 other people said this will never work, except we've done more conversions than anyone. So I think that every building works at the right basis to turn to multifamily if it's a distressed office building.
1: Hi, this is Matt Slutton, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on June 26th, is a special July 4th week conversation with Matt Pistronk from Post Brothers talking largely about real estate in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the place where it happened back on July 4th of 1776, and my hometown. Matt and his brother Mike started their company right before the GFC from, as I like to say, bupkis, and bootstrapping the business to what is now a several billion dollar AUM real estate company a major player in Philadelphia multifamily, growing into other cities and multifamily generally, but a sharpshooter in adaptive reuse of converting office buildings to apartments, a topic high on the list for our industry. Adaptive reuse is not a panacea, but when it works, it's a great tool for value creation and important to expand that envelope where we look at what to do with obsolete office buildings and expanding live work play in our urban cores. I love the conversation about Philly and the stable drivers in that market. And I love the conversation with Matt about how he and Mike stuck with their entrepreneurial guts to build their business through lots of both thick and thin. This is one of those classic leading voices, how I built this bootstrap entrepreneurial episodes. One of the delights in my career as a recruiter is having the opportunity to work with entrepreneurs at different stages in the growth path of their companies to help build their teams and infrastructure. There are phases, I think, in pretty classic models where the growth and maturation process of a business requires inorganic, help us get to the next level talent, and that's what we in our business get to do. At those moments, it's rarely, here's exactly what we need, go get me one, And if it's thunk that way, it's probably wrong. It's, hey, we're at this stage in our evolution. Help me think about what we need in our team, and let's use the search process to identify people who can help me make that evolution real. It's iterative. It's consultative. It's a creative process. And for me and my consulting with clients, a lot of the wisdom comes both from years of doing this with clients, but also from stories and perspective gained from these conversations on Leading Voices. I benefit from these conversations in my work at ZRG and hope that you as you listen to the different conversations in the series, you're gaining some of that broader perspective as well. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch about how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs, Please email me at mslapenedzergpartners.com. I hope you're having a great holiday and enjoyed this conversation with Matt. Matt Pestrong, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate and thanks so much for being on the show. I'm from the Philadelphia suburbs and love the city of Philadelphia and so thrilled to have you on the show to talk about the city and about your business and about your expansion outside of Philadelphia. We are talking the week before Independence Day, which is why I wanted this conversation to show up right now for our listeners. We haven't done a deep dive on your city, so we're going to kind of maybe start there in terms of the conversation. But I also want to hear all about your business because you built really an impressive business and you're growing, particularly on adaptive reuse stuff, which is really front headlines right now for the real estate business. So thanks for being on the show.
0: Thank you for having me, Matt.
1: And place i always like to start is some you know our guests just talking about themselves and giving an overview of themselves their voice and then their business so your elevator pitch who are you why are we here
0: i'm matt pestronk president of post brothers we're an urban infill focused multifamily developer operating in several markets on the east coast my brother and i started the company in 2006 Today, it's a fairly large vertically integrated development platform. We've got about three and a half billion of AUM have been selling opportunistically and are growing opportunistically. Um, Really, everything we do is multifamily rental driven. We think the housing market has fantastic tailwinds behind it. And we are looking to grow right now in a time where we think less people are uh, have a high conviction of deploying capital, and we can talk about that more later, but we think this is a fantastic investment environment.
1: Uh-huh. I- interesting. So fantastic investment environment would be something I don't hear right now, and also fantastic investment environment focused, not multifamily, that's not the issue, but downtowns are the issue, and that's a large mm-hmm. part of your development and again, we're going to drill into all this through the conversation, but in terms of your history, what have you bought, built, where, what's the nature of it, how much have you kept, and what's the current portfolio look like?
0: Sure. Current operating portfolio is about $1.2 billion at cost, about 3,000 units operating. We've sold about 20 properties over the years that were some smaller and subscale totaling about uh, around 2000 units, but we're not necessarily a merchant builder on um, our, though our development pipeline is substantially larger than our stabilized owned portfolios so or our owned development pipelines, about nine projects with about 3,500 units, 2 billion of cost, um, we're oriented towards things that have exit liquidity uh, or look like they have good exit liquidity, but we're not a merchant builder. So I think, um, you know, focused on larger projects in downtown, some downtowns have had some headwinds. And that uh, is why we think it's an exciting time to invest.
1: Headwinds, exciting time to invest because others aren't going there right now. And you think the thesis is a good one.
0: I think that I think that generally if there's a if there are a lot of people who are hesitant to deploy capital because they are concerned about near term volatility, if you've got the resources to make a new investment, you're gonna have less competition. You can drive price in terms.
1: Got it. And so let's I I, I said we'd talk about Philadelphia at the outset, and I I want to think about Philadelphia, but I also want to think about the investment thesis right now of downtowns. I live in the Bay Area. San Francisco, Oakland, Los Angeles, so the West Coast, Seattle, are downtowns that we worry about right now. The press calls it the doom loop, whether it's true or not. And so is the doom loop touching Philly or the other cities in which you hope to operate, you're planning to operate? Kind of talk about that right now in Philadelphia.
0: Sure. Philadelphia, I think, has had a pretty strong recovery. Um, As of June, we were over 75% relative to, or end of May, over 75% in the office versus 2019, same days. And on some days approaching 90, except the office vacancy rate is close to 20%. And it was closer to 10%. So when you add so, so, so the office vacancy rate is double what it was in 2019. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And we're down somewhere around 25%, but that also includes the office vacancy rate does not include what I would call shadow space, meaning office space that's available, but not officially available for sublease or not widely known. So I would argue that that's 75% when you incorporate a higher vacancy rate and shadow availability, uh-huh. I think, we're probably just about back. Retail traffic is back to where it was. Retail sales are back to where they were. Um, our, in Philadelphia, our, our convention business has been a perpetual, uh, perpetually underperforming because we have a high cost of uh, having conventions in Philadelphia. Right. So the travel numbers are. Are, are, are recovering, um, certainly not horrible, but downtown has more people living in it than it did. Philadelphia has the highest number of pedestrian office commuters in the United States, full stop. The number of people who walk to work every day is higher than anywhere else. And the downtown also has less dense neighborhoods surrounding it that are purely residential those have also grown like crazy in the last three or four years. So Philadelphia, say it's a utility, think of it like a utility stock because of the anchors of the employment of the economy here. You've got Comcast Vanguard children's hospital, of Philadelphia, the university of Pennsylvania, and a few, uh, a few other large, fairly stable healthcare oriented or, uh, technology, uh, financial services type of employers. So, it never really goes up like crazy like san francisco sometimes office rents double and then they crash when something happens we don't ever tend to get overheated from an office demand or leasing mm-hmm. perspective or employment doesn't grow like crazy or it's very steady residential is very very strong in philadelphia and has been for a very long time mm-hmm. so a lot of the neighborhoods are having a uh, significant quality of life issues, the, the neighborhoods not surrounding center city. But we just elected the Democratic primary winner for mayor, Sherelle Parker, I think is a very uh centrist, quality of life oriented mayor. She's the presumptive mayor because this is a Democratic city. Right. So so if she got the, she won the Democratic primary. She'll probably win the general election. Um and so highly likely. So I think that Philadelphia is, um, at worst steady as she goes. We just delivered a project. We're delivering multiple projects, but one large project we just delivered, we have leased about 700 units, which is the entire project in 14 months.
1: And where's, where's
0: that? It's in a neighborhood called Northern Liberties in Philadelphia, which is, I'm not going to say every city has a Williamsburg now. So I'm going to say it's Uh not Philadelphia's Williamsburg, but it's the equivalent, which is a no discount to the traditional core of downtown type of neighborhood. Meaning the rents here in this neighborhood, Northern liberties are the same as they are in Rittenhouse square for the same product, but it's much lower density and, um, a train, a 15 minute train commute to the core of center city or, a 10 minute uber ride so i think philadelphia is uh doing well can always be doing better these coastal cities have high costs of everything everything's slow mm-hmm. and it, it takes a long time to get projects permitted they're not particularly these cities are particularly not particularly perceived as being super business friendly yeah. but i think long-term You know, there's still an enormous amount of wealth in these coastal cities. And so that's where we're focused in the near term while people are down on them.
1: Let's get back to your comment about office census in Philly. I'm just curious comparing Philly to, say, San Francisco so why would that be the case in philly and is it because the employment base may be less techie than it is say in san francisco but also you have a higher percentage of people walking to work and i want to drill on that dynamic as well because it's fascinating
0: well the first reason is it's a tough town and working working from home is uh is is not is how our millennials know you don't get ahead. Mm-hmm. so it, because it's a tough town people know they have to be in you have to be in the office because the boss says so our largest employer comcast mandated return to office full stop they are a tech company and they have a small tech ecosystem where they're a content company but they're tech oriented they have an ecosystem that surrounds them they're back in the office their people came back in the office people walk to work so it's easier to come in plus if you think about with such a large walking to work community If they're walking to work, they don't likely live in a large single family house. They live in an apartment,
2: right?
0: I've lived in an apartment. I'm in the apartment business. I think being in an apartment, I don't like working from home, but if I had to work from an apartment all day and if there was anyone else there, I couldn't get anything done. So I think it's not more complicated than that, that when people have the ability to walk to work, they're definitely walking to work Mm and everywhere.
1: And and so drill into that a little bit, and I and I know the city well, and I know that there are neighborhoods in there. There is live work play in town and downtown, and Rittenhouse Square is kind of ground zero, maybe.
0: It's all live work play. The entire city's live work play. It's unique. We don't have an area that's the Philadelphia does not have an area that's the size of Sixth Avenue from. 40 from times square to central park, where there's really not a lot of residential and it's super, uh, office centric and concrete canyons everywhere and things of that nature. We don't have that. Our down, our concrete Canyon, market street west is like seven blocks long. And one, there's one tall, there's one tall building on each corner. It's maybe 15 million square feet of office space, but within a block, is or north or south of there is a purely residential neighborhood and so it just we didn't we didn't have that type of dense office downtown
1: and if you talk about that concrete canyon my stepbrother and his wife douglas and robin barg who i think you know right they live in the shadow of the comcast building they're on arch street two blocks from there as you just said and that's the Concrete Canyon. They're two blocks. And I have another friend, childhood friend, two blocks to the left of the Concrete Canyon on Rittenhouse Square. So different than other right. cities. So that's a driving dynamic Definitely. that's significant.
0: Our office market was never that successful. So that if we didn't, I mean, it's another way of saying that, right?
1: No, but it's interesting. Great article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that talked about the playground city is the, the new word for this and those oh. cities will be resilient downtown and San Francisco really has to work hard to bring more people who are living into the downtown area and we're we're working really hard on
0: it right now but it's going to take years uh, years i don't my my take on that is like it's 3 years real estate cycles have a tendency to accelerate up faster than people ever expect and a tendency to take for a, a despondency to take hold at the bottom, right. which drives prices down. So you quickly have price capitulation. I've, i read somewhere last week, you're starting to see price discovery in San Francisco, Yep. as soon as that happens, irrespective of any zoning issues, where either basis can be reset yep. and the build the real estate stays office. And somebody can rent a class a space for 40% of what it cost five years ago, or it can be residential. Right. Because we're massively underhoused. Anywhere you build an apartment building, I think in any city, you can rent it up. And I think that um, years, I mean, lower Manhattan didn't take years after 9-11 to have a fairly substantial increase in residential population. And so I think that you're just going to see a reinvention of, of these downtowns that are struggling faster than people think.
1: I, I think you do from a price discovery standpoint, but also the lead time, especially in the Bay Area, the lead time to get something permanent and all that stuff, we can come back to that issue. And you mentioned same in Philadelphia, but also it just takes time to, even if you sell all those buildings and could convert them to residential or build new buildings, downtown San Francisco, no matter how you look at it, the, the time that it takes to make a difference on that, to move that needle, I think is seven years minimum just to change the neighborhood?
0: San Francisco might be an outlier. I think in other places, you're starting to see fairly visible transformations taking hold. I'll just talk about Washington, D.C., which is another place we are very active right now. You're starting to see there were very few office to residential conversions. Say we have been at a price capitulation point in Washington, DC for not very long, you're actually starting to see the first conversions born out of office distress from COVID originally starting to be actually be under construction right now. And, 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 but Washington has a similar attribute to Philadelphia in that the buildings, the, the residential parts are near, nearer to the down to the pure commercial parts than people realize. And so you K Street, for instance, K Street, which is a traditional lobbying law firm, yep. Carter, has really dense residential neighborhoods within a few blocks in a few directions. And so if there's an apartment building that gets $4,000 for a one bedroom at 18th and N, right? Yep. And so you go three blocks down to K and it's all vacant office. It's we're in the real estate business. Not a stretch to say that you're going to get that same rent 3 blocks away just because no one's done it before. Well, that's what real estate development is. There was no residential on K street because law firms 5 years ago were paying $80 triple net for a new building. Well, that's not hasn't been happening. Uh-huh. It might start happening again, but because no one saw it happening for a while. you've seen substantial you know uh, re- price capitulation and, and real estate is available at a, at a price where it makes sense for residential development. So we're playing that and then office demand is coming back. Mm-hmm. secretly there
1: yep it can't go away too far in dc because we have the most stable employer whether you call it reconciliation or whatever it is sequestration at the end of the day dc is going to be a stable market let's come back to philly and i and i used to walk to work in dc as well so uh i lived in those close by neighborhoods i've only been in three cities but we, we've named them in the conversation couple more comments on Philadelphia. Talk about retail, talk about Walnut Street, talk about conventions. Mm-hmm. I just want the other drivers of that city because most people that are listening to this podcast don't know the city. And then also, I there, there may be a parallel between an underloved city in the market, in the investment marketplace. There's a lot of those cities, so they matter. But anyhow, a little more boosterism, please.
0: So Philadelphia has been a... Um, uh, traditionally, I'll just, I'll take the last question you asked first about yeah. invest, institutional investor appetite and perception of Philadelphia. What's happened in Philadelphia over multiple cycles is that because it's a low growth market for office and employment downtown, yeah. it is typically higher cap rates. When capital comes rushing in to real estate and as as values are going up The gateway cities and the most favored cities that are shown to have had higher growth, albeit maybe just in an expansionary economy, but capital is capital. You know, Nashville becomes a three cap for office as an exaggeration. And suddenly the only place to invest, it's like it's just like corporate private equity. Like you can buy a slow growth business for a much higher a much lower income multiple. Philadelphia is that slower growth business that gets bid up at the end of the cycle because it's the only place relative value, but is it that cheap? So what happens is after four or five years into every real estate upcycle, Philadelphia gets picked up by institutional and out of town investors. I mean, all, all investors are out of town from somewhere, but just new money comes into the market because it tends to be a late cycle investment. It tends to be a late cycle focus, uh-huh. like, perceived as having value but it has value when you value is what you pay for something relative to its fundamentals and its cash flow and i think when too many people think something is cheap and that's what's happened to philadelphia four times in my career generally gets no longer cheap and then also happens at the end of the cycle so getting back to philadelphia great residential market employment's very steady I don't think owning office here is a bad thing. I think you'll generally do well if you have a longer term horizon. I think you, residential is really strong. People want to live downtown. It's probably, it's it's got, I think, maybe a dozen Michelin-starred restaurants that are walkable from different points of downtown, if not a significant, more than a dozen, multiple James Beard award-winning chefs. We have the University of Pennsylvania, Drexel, Temple, multiple hospitals walkable to downtown very high quality of life in the downtown and the adjacent neighborhoods easy access to transportation we've got a good we've got a great airport that's really close to downtown people like living in the suburbs here pricing the pricing in the suburbs with great school systems relative to New York or Washington the same way our downtown rents aren't as high or downtown condo and rental prices aren't as high our suburban housing prices aren't as high for great school systems. So it is a lot going for it. Our convention center business is okay. I think we just tend to do well with small and medium-sized conventions. And we have what's called a citywide convention, which is like a 40,000 person convention the size of ICSC at its its peak. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It's always hard to have those anywhere, but like Las Vegas. So we we tend to attract some of those types of conventions, but we tend to do better with the medium-sized higher-end conventions and in our convention center, which is adjacent to downtown. So, um, and we've had some, we've had a, we've had some pretty good sports teams lately. So I think people are pretty bullish on Philadelphia.
1: I I believe that's the case. Last question. You talked about a new mayor coming in who's business friendly. Just talk about that generally because it matters a lot in terms of distinguishing towns that I think are going to be successful over the next generation.
0: Sure. So, I think we've got a mayor who's focused on what is the silver bullet of political perception, which is quality of life issues. It's low hanging low hanging fruit, and it's a silver bullet. So, to the extent there's litter, vagrancy, panhandling, people riding motorcycles on the streets, those are easy fixes. If it's if it's in the downtown, it is just about you know enforcement, 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 community policing. She's really oriented towards that and really oriented towards the perception of not adding additional taxes because that's just a bad headline, right? Like people are, since the salt deduction went into effect, people, people have been, you know, pounding the drum of, you know, everyone's leaving the high cost coastal States where, everything is expensive and takes forever and everybody's gonna move to you know suburban Atlanta, which is a perfectly nice place, but I don't really think that's accurate. We don't need, coastal cities don't need to be their own worst enemy and add to that perception. So basically not raising taxes to increase public services, but rather focusing on making public services more efficient, I think is priority one for this administration. Philadelphia is also a smaller city where, in some ways, it's easier to effectuate change than, as an extreme example, Manhattan, which is just both the Byzantine and a monolith in terms of navigating government bureaucracy. Yeah,
1: Big three cities, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, really, really hard to govern, given the magnitude of. Let's move on to your business, how you guys got started how did two non-Philly boys get to Philly? And I think the word Philly boys, because I think of Philly as someone of a provincial town where I assume everyone who's a leader in the business grew up there, but you guys didn't. So draw the connection for you and your brother, both to Philly and to why a career in real estate.
0: Sure. So we are from Washington DC originally, but the suburbs of Washington, not Washington proper. So Fairfax County and the end of Fairfax County. So, pretty far from uh, the center of the action. I went to Drexel and my brother did too. The reason I went there, I was uh, I wrestled and I wanted to wrestle at division one in college. And that was what I was interested in doing. And I wanted to go to school in a city. And I was really only familiar with the East Coast and didn't want to go anywhere that was colder than where I grew up on a material basis so i came on a recruiting trip to drexel and just really decided i loved philadelphia and really liked the school and it offered a lot of things that i wanted mm-hmm. and um this was in you know 1995
1: good for you great school yeah. great neighborhood and it's adjacent to penn so you have a critical mass along with some other schools downtown so it's a
0: yeah yeah it's sort of one situation. huge university community i'd yeah. say um so um, Drexel has a co-op program, and I was considering um, a different career other than real estate, or I'd say I was planning to become an attorney. Pro wrestler, right? It was, there, was no, <laughs> Sorry. there was no money in it then. <laughs> but anyway, I had no ambitions to be a professional wrestler in the WWF, <laughs> or as it becomes e. Called
1: an actor, so, yes. Go on.
0: Well, I'm, I'm considered an actor. So I wanted to be, I wanted to be a lawyer. Dad's a lawyer, thought that um, that was a really interesting career track. Uh, didn't really have much experience growing up around entrepreneurial people, uh, b- business entrepreneurs at all, certainly not real estate people. So that was what I thought that I should do is become you know, uh, a lawyer. And then I didn't really like school. And so that was a problem because you can, you really have to really love school to be successful in law school. And there was, there was a dichotomy there. And so, um, I did an internship as you're required to at Drexel. It's called called the co-op program. Um, I did one in commercial real estate and sort of got the bug from that. My job was totally, uh, or very tangential relative to what I do today. My job was leasing office buildings in Southern New Jersey, um, as, as a co-op student, and then right out of college. Um, that was that was what I did.
1: And you did that for like an insignia team, now
0: CBRE. I did that in college. After the co-op was over, I worked for a Collier's affiliate right out of school or when I started working full-time, actually, and did that through the Russian debt default, the 9-11, the tech bubble bursting, which was, which was an interesting interesting time to me doing office leasing. Mm-hmm. But uh, really got a taste for the business that is a really hard business to get started in and I was actually successful at it by virtue of just I'd say sheer will that building that business is just the number of calls you can make a day to prospective users of office space.
1: pure sales job it's it's interesting. one of the things I often quote in my recollection of this when I started in my search uh, in my career as a search professional, then interviewing people came up through the Trammell Crow organization. Is that all of the regional office heads of the Trammell Crow organization got their start in leasing? That's where Mr. Crow put his people because he wanted them to experience real estate very much at the ground up and know how to sell. So that's where you got your start. And then you and your brother decided to start this business, I think in 2006. What? What was the kernel of that idea, why the two of you together, and why multifamily? What was the
0: thesis? Sure. Well, it was we wanted to start what got successfully launched in 2006 and 2002. And it was because I went from really wanting to be great at leasing, which I was, to wanting to understand how these people came to own these office buildings. And I got to know a lot of the office building owners and read books, but I sort of became my own information superhighway and absorbed as much information as I could and realized that there was a problem if we wanted to own real estate with owning office buildings. Which, if you're, I think, 20, my brother was 21 or 22, and I was 25 owning office buildings is massively capital intensive. That was all that I knew was office buildings from leasing them. And so we realized that if apartments would be safer. So it seemed like, it seemed like an anti-fragile investment class and that was what attracted us to it. It's,
1: It's interesting. You're just two things, two observations about that. One is you just described in, in a few minutes the shift so when when i started my real estate career again we i've said this already on the podcast today but office buildings were the headline of commercial real estate investment or institutional investment and apartments were non-institutional in terms of their investment and then the world changed and the world started to realize that Apartments were a good investment thesis for precise end that offices were a tough investment thesis for precisely the reasons that you started your business. The other thing that you haven't said, but I think you were about to say is that you can get into it with bite sized chunks. So two 20 year olds could kind of start up a business. And maybe you were about to say that when you talk to these office building owners, the way that they started their careers to get to the big huge chunk investments was they had been in residential. Maybe that's, I don't know if you were going to say that or not.
0: They had, it's interesting. That is basically what happened is that apartments had no institutional interest really until the resolution trust corporation, which was in the early nineties, which is how these landlords who owned apartment buildings had gained enough capital to buy office buildings. Apartments as I understood it were, endemically overbuilt in the United States in the seventies and eighties everywhere. And office was too, but not to such a degree as my understanding. And so they'd started smaller. The people who I was dealing with early in my career gave me my formative impressions of how we should be investing in real estate. And we started, we we wanted to start in 2002, we had some investors that wanted to back us. I took what those investors said at face value, that they'd be willing to back us. If we found good opportunities, we sort of started a de novo acquisitions platform, which is something people do all the time today, except that no one did that then. And I think mm-hmm. we were sort of undercapitalized and relying on somebody else to provide what I'd call GP capital. So we did that decided we didn't like being subject to the whim of other people for startup capital. We didn't have enough for entrepreneurial runway to put ourselves into business in a significant enough way. So I became a mortgage broker. My brother got a job working for another real estate owner we knew. And I think that big giant humble pie we had to eat at that point was very, uh, informative for the rest of our, you know, business. And so, We'd gone back to the drawing board. We were both making, uh, you know, very comfortable livings because the real estate market was on an upward trajectory from 2003 on, I was, like I said, it was a commercial mortgage broker and that was a great thing to be doing at that time. We finally bought our first building in 2006. It was a 10 unit building. So to your point about starting bite size, that was about as bite-sized as you could get. So it was a 10 unit building. We, we sold it within a year. Then we decided we wanted to focus on buildings that could support at least some element of full-time maintenance person or, or employee for each building. So then we decided to buy apartment houses in Philadelphia and apartment houses were very underinvested in one specific area in Philadelphia. We, we saw a trend, we built a database of all the 40 to 150 unit apartment buildings in Northwest Philadelphia, which is an area called Mount Airy, Germantown. Chestnut Hill. None Mm -hmm. of them had sold. There were like over a hundred of them. There were 15 or 20 owners. We built the database and FileMaker Pro. We just started Mm -hmm. pulling the owners and none of them had had invested in the buildings, maybe one to 3% of the inventory traded every year. So the average owner had owned a building, I would say for 30, 20 to 30 years, and they hadn't invested any money. And so you'd have these buildings, we saw something very obvious. There were Victorian twin and single family houses with yards and driveways that were selling for $450,000 if they were well kept next to an apartment house with 50 units where the average one bedroom rented for five or $600. And we said, well, this is obviously a place where people with discretionary income, because those houses that were $400,000 without inflation, inflation notwithstanding would be $600,000 today. It so happens that they're probably twice that just cause the market has gone up. So, you know, in today's dollars an $800,000 house with an apartment renting for $500 that's not regulated next to it would seem like a pretty good opportunity for someone who wanted to find a piece of real estate and create a lot of value. If the entire market was $500, for a one bedroom and no one is no one had put together what the opportunity was. Now, you can't really do that anymore because of, you know, social pressures around workforce housing. And we're certainly not in that business, but that was the real estate market, you know, 2018 or 20 years ago, it, certainly in, in, in many cities and certainly in Philadelphia. So we saw that opportunity set to buy and improve these buildings. Every building we bought, we went for, it was sort of the bottoming of the GFC. Each one we improved more and more to the point where we did, so we did cosmetic renovations, heavier cosmetic renovations, and then full-gut renovations, like down, down to the studs, rebuilding rebuilding the units, reconfiguring walls, et cetera.
1: So how many, and let's put a pin in that, or how many of those buildings did you buy with the thesis in those three neighborhoods? And then that was also you were buying in the RT, not the RTC days, in the GFC days. So what? How did the GFC impact those investments and your ability to capitalize them and the transformance of them?
0: Sure. So we bought them all before Lehman went out, and each building was successful, profitable. The worst ones were were break even. The things that impacted us that were caused by the financial crisis were not the fundamentals of renting apartments. These apartments were leased at or above our pro forma rents in 2009 somebody renting an apartment in philadelphia for a thousand or eleven hundred dollars in 2009 had no no connectivity whatsoever to the gfc these were gray collar and white collar essential services workers pretty much all in healthcare and related industries not affected by the financial crisis the financial crisis affected us in two or three ways one There's no new capital available for investing. And the banks were very slow to fund construction draws. And three, scared us beyond belief as uh, there was no refinancing available.
1: The entire market froze. So you're you're two years in. You've bought four bigger buildings in those neighborhoods. The building fundamentals are doing well. You did this business with your brother, so you're all in now but the world froze.
0: Yep. Yep. So, and I had I still had my job as a commercial mortgage broker uh, because the idea was we were going to build the infrastructure, well, the infrastructure of the company. We were going to build off of the back of me not taking a salary until it was had enough growth capital and float so that you could have someone doing deals full time. We weren't doing Yep. So I was working as a commercial mortgage broker, which sort of kept the pressure off, except that business also became horrible. So as a corollary, I within a year and a half, I got married, bought a condo, was expecting our first child, and my income went down by 90%. And I had a, another business that was like not really making any money from an operating perspective and like a bunch of construction loans that were maturing with no takeouts. Mm -hmm. So I felt life was great in February, 2007 and February, 2009, you know, it was uh, like two years of wrestling practice. I'd say that's what it was (laughs) with no break. That's what those two years were like. it's
1: It's interesting and important to hear the story because how does a company bootstrap and how do you bootstrap when the timing punches you right in the chin? And you're describing you're holding two jobs, your brother's full-time, I guess. Your properties are doing well fundamentally, but you have no exit and you have no financing. Sure. But then it starts to work. So what what happens is the market unfreezes and then the business starts to make sense again.
0: So it's, it's incredibly simple. If you execute better than anyone on everything that's within your control, then you'll always do better than the market and that was what we did was that we got the apartments rented we communicated with the banks we were never we were not over leveraged we didn't have one loan default or even one loan restructuring as a matter of fact the opposite two of the banks needed to restructure the loans because they needed to us to curtail maturity extensions in order as per you know the regulator just voluntarily. And we were sort of like, if you don't do this, we might not fund the next construction draw or they didn't say sort of, but that was a long time ago. And so they said something to the effect of more than once for more than one bank. I don't know that I'm going to be able to fund your next construction draw unless you agree to relinquish your extension option on your loan. And so often, in great times, people forget that extension options are things of value and you never have to exercise on a floating rate loan. Well, we realized we had things of value. We were able to extract concessions in exchange for getting, and not loan discounts, just lower rates or whatever, in exchange for giving up things we didn't think had value when we got them. And then luckily at that time, the market started to unfreeze. I just remember we had, we actually had a third co-founder of the business uh, who decided he didn't want to be involved anymore during the financial crisis, which I don't really know how somebody decides that, but anyway, he didn't, it's not like there, he was already in. So we had, I remember buying him out on new year's Eve of 2009, simultaneously with refinancing a loan on a property into a new loan with Fannie Mae at like 6.65% and getting rid of the partner and not basically having all of our money still tied up with the business, but like feeling like there was finally a path forward. Now, Mm -hmm. I think we ordered pizza for New Year's like many people did on (laughs) uh, New Year's Eve 2000, going into 2010, but uh, that, that, that was, uh, I was, I was very happy actually. And so in January of 2010, we got the first construction loan on any project that, that anyone I knew had gotten on anything in over a year. So I think we got an eight or $9 million loan construction loan on a project we bought for cash right before Lehman went out syndicated between three community banks. And I had to, I remember I had to present to the board, of each bank, the board of each bank, to get them to agree wow. to take a 2 or $3 million loan participation in January of 2009. But we had then, at that point, no projects that were not appropriately capitalized for the business plan, either on a permanent basis, while well, the rates were up high, but right. at least we were covering. And if we had a construction loan, no one else did, and construction prices, to say they were low at that point, would be an understatement. So then then the fun began.
1: And then when did you quit your job? Was
0: that when you quit? No, um, I did not. I think that um, there's a fine line when it comes to being a, a mortgage broker or a real estate broker or an advisor and doing things that compete with your clients. And in that case, it was owning commercial real estate but advising other people on how to finance commercial real estate Including possibly prospective acquisitions, we were doing five to ten million dollar projects at that time. Sif was not in the business of arranging financing for five to ten million dollar projects. I think something that's underestimated constantly in the real estate development business is something called entrepreneurial runway. I'd had two to three years of negative cap- capital outflows to build get the business built, and because my life changed, I had more responsibilities. Right. And if the CMBS market was finally back in January of 2010, there was no way I wasn't going to um, take advantage of the opportunity to make money I had from an existing client base, considering they'd all had a log jam of properties that they weren't able to finance for well over a year or two years. So I really kept doing, I, I continued to do that full time for about another two years. Uh-huh. And that gave us the ability to continue to have me take no compensation from the business, but allow us to put in the critical senior most infrastructure, right? Every entrepreneur's journey is different and really only makes sense to the person who's going through it. But it's like, how do you get yourself to a place of financial security, given whatever your particular circumstances are? So that was it for me, was that the business had to have sufficient scale so that the, all of the key pieces that were in place up to the, uh, other than me, the people were compensated at the right. top of the, the relative top of the market. And so that took until about 2012.
1: And entrepreneurial runway means that you have the staying power to make it until you make it.
0: You can pay for your lifestyle, whatever your lifestyle needs are. i.e., So your wife doesn't leave you, uh, <laughs> Um, Very important to not have your wife leave you because you did something stupid and quit a lucrative job for a startup that, you know, pays you in sunflower seeds. Mm -hmm. So, so entrepreneurial runway means the ability to support yourself until whatever you're doing as an entrepreneur can support you really underrated.
1: I love it. And your brother's supported by the business, so he's running the business full-time with his only job mm-hmm. at that point. Then in 2012, you jump in. So mm-hmm. talk about phase two of the business. Phase one was Germantown, Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill. You're buying these four or five properties from sleepy owners. What comes next? What's the next
0: phase of this business? Sure. The next phase was, it was driven by all of the opportunities coming out of the GFC. So we went from probably in the space of two years, 25 or maybe $30 million of assets under management at cost. to so like 30 times that or 20 times that. And so we were buying from distressed sellers, typically lenders who are foreclosing. There was a real abundance of those types of mm-hmm. players of those kinds of opportunities. And we'd had some large family office investors that had dipped their toe in with us before the GFC. We performed better than any of their other sponsors, or so we were told. During the GFC, we didn't lose anyone any money. And we brought another sort of opportunity that was incrementally larger than what we'd done before, but not institutional scale, not going from a $10 million project to, a $40 million project. We thought it was too much of a jump, we went from a 10 to a 15. And our partner said, why, why are you, have done this already. Why are you doing this? Why do you want to do this again? Why don't you, there's so much opportunity. There's probably a lot. I have, I have some capital. You guys have built a, a nice little track record. There's probably some other investors that would back you. Why don't you, why don't you buy broken assets that you can turn into something that would have institutional liquidity? And well, of course that sounded better than what we'd been doing, but, We were always focused on achieving success with what we were pursuing and jumping into something that was four times larger than anything we'd ever done seemed to be overly aggressive to us. Then we were convinced it wasn't. So then we just kept doing incrementally larger projects. And so the largest project that was spawned out of that period was a project called Presidential City. We bought it in the end of 2012. Um, we did not, we bought it from a seller who was motivated, but not, that was sort of at the end of the very distressed period. And we sold that property. We bought it. We put around $200 million into it and we sold it for like, so we bought it round numbers. We were in it for 260 million and we sold it for 360 million, actually uh, a little less than a year ago to, um, to an institutional buyer, and we did a lot between now and then. But we were going from picture January 2010. I'm begging for
2: mm-hmm.
0: a nine million dollar, eight or nine million dollar construction loan from three community banks to cap fully capitalizing a 250 million dollar plus project within. Uh, about three years right so we bought presidential city then we, we got a construction loan after the fact and redeveloped this thousand unit property so that was a really interesting warp speed experience
1: yeah it's interesting that's one of the first large apartment buildings i knew because we used to drive by it when i grew up three miles from there every time i went to my grandmother's house i had to drive by this thing and it's like what's that apartment building it was called presidential city And you bought it, it sounds like you bought it for a song because you put in 200 million, you had 260 altogether, so you didn't buy it for that much.
0: I think we actually bought it for 80 and put in 180, but those are the round numbers. And
1: and let me pick up on a theme here. You talk about these investors who came with you all along and who did well. And Mm -hmm. how did you bootstrap into those first investors? And then the second thing is it sounds like the investors were mentoring you to grow. And was there a particular investor who kind of raised the bar for you to what was possible?
0: Yes. So, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> okay. So, the first question is: We bootstrapped our first our first two investments, with equity raises that were like a million two between the two in aggregate. One was like four hundred thousand. One was eight hundred thousand. And there's all these podcasts about how to do, how to raise money in increments like that today. That's like popped up. It was absolutely horrible. It was a horrible, it was a horrible experience because we were raising money in 25 to $50,000 average chunks. And a couple of things, generally those kinds of investors don't always have the ability to meet a capital call, especially when things are bad. And it's just, as they say, a tough way to roll a seven how do you raise $20 million? I mean, I guess you can do it through crowdfunding. How do you raise 20 or 30 or $40 million in those chunks? I don't know. I didn't want to find out. Mm-hmm. So our third investment, we said, we'd gotten to know some high net worth, really high net worth people, just from my connections in the, uh, in, in sort of wall street, real estate finance. And some people started to dip their toe with us at that point. And Suddenly, we had investors. It went from realizing there was capacity to do significantly larger projects with fewer investors. So, I think they wanted to see us continue to provide an outlet for them to allocate capital into a real estate strategy that uh, they thought had a lot of legs. And I think, without getting into great specifics, th- this first person who was our first very large investor, did not not seed this business in any way, but actually, broadly speaking, um, bought into, I would say, the holding company or the GP a few years after the GFC, as we put a lot of these acquisitions and developments under our belt, to a very famous hedge fund manager and had a vision that You know you can do this and then came to us and introduced us to a lot of other family office type investors who were sort of institutional in their scale but not their process because we couldn't get allocator money remember today i'm 46 we're talking 13 or 14 years ago i was 32 my brother was um uh, 28 and people had just been through a financial crisis and it didn't matter that we had a good track record after being in business for five or six years in you know the early teens, it just they didn't know us. They needed to invest with a bigger name, even if the bigger name had lost every dollar of every investment during the financial crisis. We couldn't get Alacare right. money, so if we needed twenty or thirty or forty million dollars, we couldn't get it from Carlisle, Right? We had this growing family office network that we just tapped into, and um, it just sort of happened organically, and that was really interesting. Yeah. Hey, let let me go back
1: and pick on something you said before, because I I meant to ask you this and I meant to challenge you on something you said, which was that you got through the GFC because you operated better than anybody. And I'm going to guess that it doesn't quite take that level of genius because you had a thesis that made sense. You got in at a good price point. The thesis mm-hmm. remained, so you had to do what you said you would do well, mm-hmm. but you didn't have to operate with magic. Magic wasn't required on the operational side to have gotten through that period of time.
0: No, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think there's no magic, to, but there's a lot of people who aren't willing to work harder than anyone else. Correct. Aren't willing to look at how to disintermediate areas in the value creation chain, for instance, at that time we became our own general contractor. Now I'm not suggesting that's for everyone, right. but to us, that was an obvious area of inefficiency and savings. We built a management company from the beginning to manage our own properties. We never had third party management. We didn't use a third party general contractor for a while. For instance, we realized we could buy materials, construction finish materials directly from the manufacturer by establishing our own distribution. Entity. What does that mean? You form an LLC, and you use the LLC's email address to order refrigerators instead of buying them as post-commercial real estate, because just manufacturers of um, these things will only sell to distributors, not to developers. Well, Mm -hmm. no, I think the, the entire thing was fairly obvious. So doing better just meant working harder, squeezing more, it helped me run an asset class that fundamentally performed and was the first asset class to have liquidity after the crisis.
1: All true. I want to talk about two other things in phase two of your business. Then I want to get to phase three, which is coming forward. One is you then got into new construction, also in yes. the Philly market. And then two, you did a deal on Broad Street. And I want to talk about each of those quickly before we move on. So first, sure. with new construction, because that's a big leap as well.
0: So no, actually. So in, in new construction, our first project was in Northern New Jersey. We still okay. own it. It's called the du- the duchess uh-huh. to North Bergen on the Hudson river across from 90th street, Manhattan. Everything we'd done as we'd gotten our AUM to like 600 million or some, some number like that was reconstruction of an existing building, adaptive reuse, gut mm-hmm. renovations, whatever. We sort of, that, that was a difficult, that is a difficult business and we we've been successful at it, but building ground up from plan seemed a lot easier. <laughs> and at that time, um, I'd say around 2014, Philadelphia, new construction was, the numbers didn't quite pencil, but in Northern Jersey, we found an opportunity. It was way easier to execute on mm. than an adaptive reuse. So we said, we we wanna get into this business in a programmatic way, um, and really focused on, on starting to build a foothold in the ground-up business. I said I'd say when we delivered that project in 16, we started pre-development on a few others. Ground-up; those were in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Then the building, the building on Broad Street, which is an adaptive reuse, we bought in 2012. It's called the Atlantic Building. It's sort of our proof of concept of adaptive office reuse. Yeah. And keep in mind, we bought it over a decade ago, so. It was the headquarters of the Atlantic Richfield Refining Company, really sort of spectacular headquarters quality construction building. When was it built? I think they finished it in 1929 okay, or 1925. And so it's a Beaux-Arts facade. It's not an Art Deco building in terms of the way the architectural style. And it gets the highest rents today in Philadelphia on a gross and per square foot basis, which really put a flag in our conviction that you can do you can get as high rents with adaptive reuse in the best locations as you can and ground up in the best locations, all things being somewhat equal.
1: So I want to unpack two parts about that. So, cause we're going to get to the thesis of adaptive reuse of office buildings in a few minutes. Talk about jumping into that. What made that property work from a bones standpoint and from an execution mm-hmm. standpoint. And also I, I've told you this before, but, um, I stayed at at Airbnb in the Heinz building three blocks away on Walnut Street, which is a beautiful new construction building that you probably pulled out of the ground at about the same time or delivered around the same time. So talk about A, adaptive reuse and what works and what doesn't work there. And then B, how in the marketplace that equals or beats a property that's brand new construction by Heinz
0: because they know what they're doing. Generally adaptive reuse is best left to companies that are relatively nimble, relatively entrepreneurial. We have a higher degree of conviction in our rental investment our rental product than any. So we get higher rents than the Heinz building does. Our building at the Atlantic gets higher rents than 1213 Walnut because it's just a better execution. It's the highest quality appliances the highest quality amenities, and it's simple. There's not a lot of excessive design. It's a timeless design. So I think if you're you know, relatively lean, relatively focused on you know, a few different markets and you understand your customer, you're gonna deliver a better product than a much larger competitor who might be international in scale. So the Atlantic building worked because our plan was simple, delivered to the targeted customer, Understanding what that customer wants and the layout for adaptive reuse worked because we configured the floors around the structural the structural constraints of the building. So we basically have a roller rink hallway and a very large elevator lobby. So the it's a corridor that goes around a, around the elevator lobby in a square with apartments on only one side. So basically a large uh, single loaded corridor. And if you understand how to do that from a design perspective, which is something we knew how to do well, we've done adaptive reuse before that, it just worked.
1: And the risk, because you talked about simple was Bergen County and hard to execute as adaptive reuse because there's surprises in the walls. How do you underwrite the surprises in the walls that you really can't control for? And did the bones of that building deliver free juicy stuff that people would love to live in
0: the bones of that building delivered exceptionally high ceilings Mm -hmm. in a great location Mm -hmm. what adaptive reuse offers when executed properly is typically a better location than anywhere you could find unencumbered land ground up
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, that is the key to adaptive reuse in today's environment Um, you're just getting a better location so in terms of surprises behind the walls generally you should not be underwriting preserving any part of the building except the main architectural the main structural vertical elements of the building i.e the floor slabs possibly the exterior walls if it's a building that has the potential to put operable windows in the facade but often you're going to reclad a facade anyway and so if it's especially if it's a 70s 60s or 70s buildings, they they don't have the ability to have operable windows most typically. So we've done about a billion dollars of adaptive reuse at cost, gut renovations and adaptive reuse prior to this current cycle. So I think we're pretty familiar with all the things that can go wrong. And and I think underwriting, the underwriting is what's behind the walls doesn't matter because you're not keeping any walls. Mm. It's all going away.
1: Last question on this before we move to the current state of your business is how did COVID affect that thesis and the performance, both of your property in Broad Street and then the
0: overall market? So I think the initial shock of COVID took all urban multifamily from basically fully occupied to 70% occupied by the fall of 2020 Mm -hmm. by... The time vaccines came out, our entire portfolio was massively accelerating from an occupancy perspective. People don't wanna live in their parents' homes or their parents' beach houses or anything like that. They want their own space. So by the summer of 21, we'd started to see totally full occupancy and massive rent growth. But unquestionably, I think apartment occupancy Everywhere in in every urban location was a free fall for about 120 days. We were no different.
1: But some downtowns, again, I'm I'm in San Francisco, where I believe that overall rents didn't really recover very well, but downtown Mm -hmm. Philly did.
0: Yeah, quickly. It did. It did pretty quickly.
1: Okay. I'll leave this one at that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it recovered very quickly and grew.
1: Cool. So let's talk about what you're up to now. Let's talk a little bit about new construction, but I'm particularly curious about your move into the DC market with the acquisition of two adaptive
0: reuse office buildings. Sure. So we're building two very large multi-phase ground up projects now, and we have another medium-sized ground up project. That's the second non-contiguous phase of Another project. So we're building three ground up projects today, totaling that we're vertical on, totaling about 2,800 units between the three.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And we have two other covered, what I'd say, covered land ground up projects that will be starting in the next year. Those are all in Philadelphia. Uh-huh. And we've had a real focus on adaptive reuse probably for about a year in terms of new acquisitions. Uh-huh. So And that that focus has seemed to land squarely in Northwest Washington, DC. The reason we've been focused on Northwest Washington is probably gets the highest rents on the East Coast, other than New York City in terms of an urban market, or I'd say it does. Washington has an unbelievable economic driver, as you mentioned before, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: which you mentioned that people won't ever get laid off. I would say it's more like every dollar that is in circulation in the united states every part of the gdp of america some part of it touches or comes through washington so the gdp of the washington region itself is quite substantial so there's a lot of demand for class a rental housing all over the washington area northwest washington is where demand is strongest and the washington office market has a lot of obsolete 60s and 70s office buildings with multifamily zoning um, that can be acquired far off peak pricing and converted to multifamily rentals or in some cases, knocked down and uh, be replaced with an apartment.
1: So can you talk about the buildings? Let's talk about to kind of identify the two buildings for our listeners, because there's so much talk right now in the popular culture in our industry about moving office buildings into multi-family, and all I hear is, eh, it's not a panacea. It's not really going to work. And here you have two examples that you're making happen.
0: Thanks, Matt. Here's two, things, here's two buildings that are going to work by virtue of what they are and where they are. We bought them with a guaranteed path to total vacancy. The floor plates work in terms of depth. They're in super premium residential locations, and they're zoned by right to build apartments. So, no, not everything fits that what these buildings offer. So, one building is in Calorama at 1825 Connecticut Avenue. The other is called 2100 M Street, ingeniously, because it's at the corner of 21st and M. Uh-huh. So, each one of them is has just such obvious demand drivers. Um, they're both in areas where... They pass. They pass the. They pass the test of. There's got to be a Nobu and a Four Seasons close by, and they both have that. So mm-hmm. if you're not looking to convert every building, which we're not, and you're trying to hold the bar high, which is you need to be adjacent to a super premium residential location to want to pursue the building, have by-right zoning, and have a path to the building being being entirely vacant these fit the total project cost of these buildings probably will be around like, uh, these two fully, fully capitalized, like around a billion dollars, maybe a little more. And that's, that's what we're focused on. Things that are really have scale, scale makes them worth doing. And these are, you know, globally, liquid locations.
1: And thinking about both locations, 23rd and M, you 21st, know, the, and M. 21st and M again, the buildings that are around the corner are tremendous. The walk to work, even if people are working half time, pretty good. Adjacency to Rock Creek Park. And then the building mm-hmm. at Florida and, and Connecticut. Connecticut. Amazing locations.
0: Yeah, well, they're only 10 minutes apart. Maybe 15. Yeah, that's, that's right. So when it comes to adaptive reuse and converting office buildings, it might be more of a panacea than people think, but... There's so little actual competition of people that are doing it. I think it's easy to seize upon what's obvious, which is the best locations with all of the things you need to make something work. Basis, zoning, half to vacancy to convert.
1: Mm-hmm. And go back to the bones of each building, because what I've read mostly in the popular press, the New York Times, Gensler, everyone's talking about this is the buildings don't really work, but are these unique buildings that do? And was the Atlantic a unique building that does?
0: Every conversion that someone's actually executed, I think there is a conversion that 10 other people said this will never work, except we've done more conversions than anyone. (laughs) So I think that every building works at the right basis to turn to multifamily if it's a distressed office building. You either have to knock it down if, you have to do too much structural reconfiguration because at some point that becomes too time consuming. Or you can make the floor plates work. Um, zoning and tenant encumbrances are typically much bigger issues than floor plates. Because if the floor plates too challenging the bil- and their zoning, the building just becomes land. There's no zoning, there's nothing to talk about. And if it's like 40% lease with a weighted average lease term as an office building of four and a half years, why would you spend any time on it? Mm -hmm. So it's not a panacea. And people are looking at things that if they had experience in the space, they wouldn't get all frustrated and spend weeks on something and just say to whoever's selling it, if the problem is tenant encumbrances, you just sign a contract and say, the tenants need to agree to be out within two years of closing on the day I close or I'm not closing. If it has zoning, And it either works as a teardown or the floor plates work. And if it's not too expensive. So it's like a Rubik's cube of four things or a matrix. But all you have to do is align them. It takes no time.
1: Mm -hmm. So from a business perspective, first of all, we're going to do a podcast in two years and we're going to review the success of those buildings. So let's let's book that now. You,
0: You got it. Okay, done.
1: Are you looking at other markets in terms of the growth of your business? You're talking all the Northeast. So you've mentioned New, New Jersey, you've mentioned Philly, obviously, and now DC. Do you chase the thesis of adaptive reuse into other cities? How does that How does that look for the growth and plans and future of company?
0: Sure. So the adaptive reuse thesis that we're pursuing. Is the is a best location thesis of delivering new multifamily? Mm-hmm. Yes, if there is real estate available in extremely high barrier to entry locations, that as a result of a dislocation in the office market, where you can acquire the real estate inexpensively enough, we would probably look at one or two other cities that have a, a lot of the economic diversification that the cities we're in have, i.e. stable economies. Um, And if that comes out of office distress, yes, broadly speaking, I think that we're going to be equally focused on the future pipeline being taken with ground up in markets that are currently overly invested because I think there's going to be an opportunity to step in to... A, into a development pipe, into development opportunities and markets that have been overinvested in the last five or six years, to the point where the fundamentals didn't make sense. So, we like we like all we like all different kinds of development. It can be right now; it's been city center focused. If it's urban adjacent, if that's the opportunity set in three mm-hmm. years, in two years, that's that's what we'll be doing. But always looking to diversify and identify the next opportunity set, diversify geographically mm-hmm. by project type and find the next opportunity set.
1: Cool. We haven't talked about co-leading a business with your brother. So I just want to unwrap that a little bit. Talk about how you delineate responsibilities, share responsibilities. Are you yin yang? Are you the same person kind of, how does that work and talk about the delight and challenges of that way of running a business?
0: Well, I think it's been mostly a delight or a very (laughs) positive experience Uh because we focus on entirely different things. Mm as he jokes, he got the CEO title. I got the president title and the theory that the CEO title is superior to the president title because he was the one who went and ordered the business cards at Kinko's that day. We didn't discuss it before that. So we do entirely different things. I focus on capital formation, acquisitions, financing, investor relations. He focuses on design, building development, overseeing construction, and property operations, uh, sort of reports to him. Also, management, leasing—we do all those things internally. I think that a we defer when the other person feels strongly about anything, but we speak, you know, many times a day. And I think the key to a first generation to any family business is having people having their own areas of responsibility and treating each other as partners rather than as family. You have to, in any successful partnership, you have to have agreement on whose response, who has what responsibilities, what responsibilities are shared and keeping, keeping, you know, emotional behavior uh, out of the office. And so that's, that's been the secret. It's been great. You know, we've, we've built the company from zero to where we are now. And I think that, we couldn't have done it, especially getting through the early part, without the other person's skill set. Today, I think we've got, you know, good senior management. There's some redundancies to each of our roles. Obviously, it's still a founder-led business, but that's probably because we've each just done every job there is to do here. But now we have maybe in most times narrower, narrower roles than we once had. Because we've got a pretty robust executive team that we've, we've built over time.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's
1: interesting. I think both the trust that you have going in is a wonderful thing. Being able to, A, trust, B, delineate responsibilities. You generally do this, he generally does that, but you're together on everything. That's a beautiful business model when you could do it. And then knowing when it's family and when it's business. I find when I talk to entrepreneurs, sometimes second generation, uh, Toby Bazuto you know, calls his dad, Tom, every time he says that it feels weird. Cause I want him to call him dad, but the, you do it because it's business. So you have to use that word to know that you're in a business relationship on this particular conversation.
0: Right. I think, I think we also have the luxury of the luxury and the privilege and the misery all at once of bootstrapping from zero. Right. So, you know, when it gets so hard that you want to quit, it's that much harder to quit on your brother versus somebody else. I don't know that I ever felt that I wanted to quit, but it does help to have that bond when things are really difficult. And um, I think that really helped in, in, in the beginning.
1: Yeah, totally true. Okay. Last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business.
0: There's been, I've gotten so much, free advice, some of it brilliant and some of it worth what you pay for. So the advice that I would give someone getting into the real estate business out of college versus wanting to be a real estate entrepreneur, two different, two different sets of advice right out of college, get your foot in the door any way you can. It doesn't matter if you think you should work at Goldman Sachs and that's not working out, get your foot in the door. Real estate is a tiny industry. You you will get where you want, if you deserve to get there, no matter what. So get your foot in the door is right out of college. Becoming a real estate developer or real estate or or investor entrepreneur. I think my advice would be two things. One, you will get lots of people who will tell you not to do what you're doing. It's a bad idea. This is too risky. Only, you know, if it's too risky for you or not. So don't just take criticism Don't take criticism on its face because every entrepreneur's journey is is their own.
1: Hmm. It's interesting. Two comments to what you said. Really interesting. One is get your foot in the door. What I always say, and you did it, is learn the hell out of the business. Once your foot's in that door, then the world is open to learn. So suck it in, suck it dry, go for it. Learn every bit of the basics you possibly can. And then you said it through this conversation. You said it right now at the end about being an entrepreneur is knowing your risk profile and having a thesis, separate subject, but knowing your risk profile and then having that conviction to stick with it when it's really tough.
0: Yes. Yes. Understanding, understanding your own threshold for risk. And it could be more, it could be less than whatever advice someone is giving you about what to do. I've been, I've been advised to take, you know, way more risk than I'd ever take. And I've done things that have been, we've done things that have been very, very successful that other people thought were impossible. And I think that not doing the things that we thought were too risky was probably the right move,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. but you know, you never know. And I know that the things we were successful on, I can definitely tell you, people said this will never work and those worked. So, yeah, trust your gut about how you feel about risk. That's that's a, the best advice I can give anyone.
1: And I often talk to people about when they jump off into a business, people think they should do it alone. And I always suggest to people, find a partner who's your yin and yang. And if that partner could be your sibling, you know, all the more beneficial if that works out.
0: I always knew my own shortcomings and knew what I was good at. And I think that um, the idea of, Becoming an entrepreneur on your own is something that's, I've seen my friends who do that and they've struggled to really scale businesses and they have have a comfortable living and they're happy, Mm -hmm. but I see with each one of them, what, what they're missing. And I think, I think starting a business with a partner to the extent you can find someone who brings something entirely different Mm -hmm. than you do in terms of skills is, is, is a really, really smart thing to do. Can't hurt you.
1: Yeah. Well, great story. Congratulations on your success to date, but you guys are young and you have a long runway to go. So I look forward to participating, helping being your friend and watching you continue your success. So thank
0: you. Thanks, Matt.
1: I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them and add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com leadingvoices leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate, human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at crgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading
2: Voices.